Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. And with us today, we have a poet, Stephen C. Pollock, who is the recipient of the Rolf Humphreys Poetry Prize and a former associate professor at Duke University. His poems have appeared in a wide variety of literary journals, including Blue Unicorn, The Road Not Taken, Live Canon Anthology, Pine Song, Coffin Bell, and Buddhist Poetry Review. And his first book is Exits. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Stephen. Well, thank you so much. It's <laughs> great to be here. So you were a professor, but not of writing, I understand. That's correct. <laughs> uh, my professional training was as a physician. So after I graduated from Amherst College, I trained for 10 years to become a, um, a doctor and an ophthalmologist and then a specialist in neuro-ophthalmology. And in 1987, I was recruited to Duke University as chief of neuro-ophthalmology and spent um, 17 years in academic medicine. Um, the reason I mentioned that is that during all that time, I was not writing poetry. Um, some physicians, I think, are able to write at the same time as they're in practice, but um, my academic practice was sort of all-consuming, and it, it suppressed that desire to write poetry and that instinct um, that had been with me since age nine. And so there was a 26-year hiatus between when I wrote early in life and when I've been writing the poems that actually uh, appear in, in the book Exits. Did you, were you thinking about writing during that time? Were you thinking, boy, I wish I had the time or energy to write, or did it just sort of disappear from your awareness? Well, I was aware that I wasn't writing poetry because um, I really wanted to, but the amount of writing that I was doing at the time was writing book chapters for neuro-ophthalmology texts, and I was writing um, scientific articles for publication in medical journals. And so as far as writing, that's what uh, really it took up the time. Um, I even wrote a patent um, when I was a, a medical student. So I was very involved in writing, but just not poetry. But in 2003, which was a year before I left Duke, um, I started to wind down my responsibilities. And concurrent with that, uh, the instinct to write poetry began to reassert itself. And um, uh, ideas began to percolate up, and I began to write again. Mm. I do. I, I do find that it seems like a lot of physicians, a lot of doctors, are writers too. You know, I've had quite a few writing doctors on the show: uh, poetry, suspense thrillers, romantic comedy. You know, all kinds of different writing. And sometimes I wonder if it's a way to sort of balance the having to be, you know, so scientific, you know, that, that you need that create that creative balance in some way. I think that's a really good point. And it does apply to a lot of doctors who do write in other genres. But for me, <clears throat> I think the instinct to write had a different origin. Um, I began writing independently of schoolwork when I was nine, um, and it took two forms. I, I, I scribbled poems in pencil on shirt cardboard um, pretty much wherever I went, and these were rhyming poems, so um, I was very influenced by Dr. Seuss and Yertle the Turtle. Um, but I also wrote... Um, uh, essays on human anatomy and physiology. Um, I had a mother who was an artist and who sort of nurtured the aesthetic side of her son. 
But my father was an, an attorney and very rational, very logical. And so there was that influence as well. And so um, my writing um, really began at that age. And although the the uh, essays on anatomy and physiology sort of um, anticipated my future career as a physician, um, I was much more interested in the poetry. And that that interest increased in high school. I had a sophomore English teacher who who had us keep a poetry notebook for half a year. And we would put our favorite poems in there. Um, we'd put our reactions to those poems in, in the journal. And um, uh, that, that was a significant um, uh, exercise that really nurtured my interest in poetry. But it really became much more intense in college. So even though I was a biology major on the pre-medical track, um, I took four really rigorous um, poetry courses, literary poetry. Uh, they were not creative writing courses, um, but they certainly increased my, my interest in the art form. And uh, I can tell you a interesting story that occurred in my last semester at Amherst. Um, I, um, I was taking my usual course load when the impulse to write a serious poem arose and I stopped attending classes, all my classes. <laughs> I isolated myself from friends uh, I sort of ate and slept reluctantly, and I spent five straight weeks writing a uh, poem, a metaphysical poem, on the subject of objective versus subjective reality. And that poem I ended up submitting uh, to the college for one of these prizes, and it actually won. And so... Uh, it probably made some of the English majors a little bit annoyed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was a great okay, experience. Okay, five weeks of not going to classes. Did you still pass? Did you, I mean, oh, how yeah. did you make up the work and the time? And <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I, I must have worked very hard in the other, you know. In the uh, rest of it. So. Wow, wow. But it was very worthwhile. And when I look back on that poem, it was a poem that really showed my growth in understanding the art form because it was in three sections. It was like a triptych. And when I read the first portion now, it's just cringeworthy. It's so, <laughs> such a student effort. But then as you move through this long poem, which was 128 lines, um, it's clear that I started to not only understand what poetry was, but I became more adept at using my own aesthetic sensibilities on the page. So there's this clear um, growth curve um, throughout the poem. You know, it's interesting to me how many young people really get into poetry mm -hmm. and then lose that interest completely later on in life. And, you know, cause I remember having, you know, all my friends, I don't think it was part of a course, a class, but we all had these poetry journals like you talked about in high school and mm -hmm. um, where we would save poems and, and write poems. And, and I remember like, I don't know, 25 years later or something, finding this in a box, this poetry journal, and looking through, and I found this 
poem called The Martyr, and it didn't say who it was by, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, did I write that? Oh, this is really good. Maybe I wrote that. And then I uh, did a little research and found out it was the lyrics to a Jim Croce song. So I just... <laughs> So no, I did not write it. But 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 yeah, so many people are really into it as when they're young and and now they're sort of I don't know, even a move away from teaching poetry to young people and art and things like that because they're not STEM and That's right. the focus has to be on STEM and just think what we would all have missed out on in our own growth and development. It's not- true. It's, it, it is not just an art form, but I think it does provide insights into the human condition. Um, I think poetry provides so many different perspectives on so many different topics that in a way it also teaches empathy um, and it, it helps us understand more about our world and about the nature of our existence. So it, it is an art form and it's enjoyable. And, you know, I love the, um, the beauty of it, but also the craft of it, but it does, it does, I think have a role in society as well. And so it's unfortunate that um, many high schools and colleges are de-emphasizing the humanities. Yeah, and you speak as uh, someone who had a career in the sciences. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, although obviously, uh, I have very, very broad interests. Um, <laughs> well, uh, indeed, indeed. So you immediately started writing again as your time writing poetry again as your time was freed up. Now. Were you retiring or were you just moving into a different career at that point? Uh, My career was a play in two acts. Um, The first was my 17 years in academic medicine at Duke. And then uh, it's a story that's too long to tell here, but I transitioned to um, heading a vision benefits company, a national company called CEC, um, that I co-founded and then was CEO of for another two decades. And um, it was during that time that um, I did most of the writing for Exits, although it wasn't done with the idea of a a book in mind. Um, The poems were written um, sporadically and... Uh, sort of unpredictably, whenever, whenever lightning would strike, um, and so they were each their own individual pro- uh, project, and most of the ones that ended up in the book were written between 2003 and 2021. And my original idea, Monica, was to um, was to put together a book of my best work. And that was going to go into a book called uh, Line Drawings. But as I was going through and selecting the works that would, would be included, I noted that a really unusual number were related to the theme of mortality and the cycles of life and, um, and death. And I decided that um, instead of just putting together what I considered to be my strongest poems, that I would um, curate a more concise, themed uh, collection, and that's how Exits was born. Well, Stephen, why don't you read a poem from Exits as kind of an introduction for us? I'd be delighted to. Um, Why don't I read the poem called Seeds? This is a sonnet, and um, like most sonnets, it has 14 lines. It's a little bit unusual in that it is syllabic, 
most sonnets uh, nowadays uh, at most have just five metrical feet per line, but this sonnet has 10 syllables per line, which hasn't been done in a long time. Very few um, poets <laughs> do that. It's also unusual in that the end rhymes, there are only two sounds. So um, instead of being like an English sonnet where every quatrain has its own um, couplets, um, this entire poem has only two end rhymes, which um, makes it a little more challenging. Wow. So let me read Seeds. A goldfinch whose yellow rivals the sun could cull any bloom this garden has grown, yet favor the flowering long past blown, its petals shriveled, stem brittle and done in a coneflower patch where just this one seemed to wither, wilt, and ask to be mown. The bird plucked the seeds ensconced in the cone, made it sway the way that metronomes run till time runs out, till the goldfinch has flown. One flower spent, the perennials sown, a fate conceived by the dying and done, though death, it said, may breed oblivion. So many seeds were born by each alone. So many lost with loss of those I've known. Thank you. And that was Seeds from the collection Exits by Stephen C. Pollock. So what was the inspiration for that poem? That was inspired by two things. Um, one was I actually observed a goldfinch outside of my bathroom window plucking seeds from a coneflower, which um, seemed to me to be uh, a metaphor, a nature metaphor for, for life and death, because here is a flower that was dying um, and a bird was going to disseminate its seeds so that the uh, the cycle of life would continue. Um, and that's not uncommon with me, to, to see some kind of natural phenomenon, whether it be an eclipse or the leaves on a tree or this particular event, um, and have it kind of inspire a, a poem. But that observation was made at the same time when my 95-year-old father lost his best friend and his cousin. And so even though the poem for 13 and a half lines seems like it's really about um, the life cycle of nature, in the very last line, there's a turn where there's an... Uh, a mention of I, you know, uh, so many lost with loss of those I've known. And you realize that this also applies to the human situation and human existence. Um, and the idea of when people die, that the seeds that they have are also either dispersed or lost, um, whether that be their their relationships, their memories, their emotions, their knowledge, um, their wisdom that they've acquired. So the poem surprises in the very last line by connecting with um, human experience. So you saw this goldfinch. Did you immediately say, okay, I'm going to sit down and write now? Or No. No, no. It, it took a while to marinate. <laughs> okay. All right. And then when you do, um, you, it's marinated, you're ready to write. Do you get, you know, do you do like you did in college where you isolate yourself and you're thinking of nothing else and you're just intensely focused on the poem at that point? Absolutely. Wow. In fact, um, um, 
the key for me is to occupy a place where sounds and rhythms and ideas and um, metaphorical possibilities sort of freely enter my mind um, and continuously enter my mind. But at the same time, um, I apply critical filters to filter out the um, the 99.9% of, of ideas that really have no literary merit. So I'm a probably my toughest critic. And um, I often think of myself as two people when I'm writing, you know, there's the me that's writing and coming up with potential ideas and auspicious phrases or words. Um, but there's also the me that's looking over my shoulder and critiquing every word I write. Um, so it's a, uh, it's an interesting experience with the two of us. <laughs> now, do you involve any external people other, other than the two of you in this? You know, is there a point where you show, share the poem with someone else, get feedback, or is it a completely solitary endeavor? It is about as solitary as you can get. Um, I will occasionally, after after a long editing process, uh, I'll share the poem either with one of my sisters or with my spouse. But um, uh, for the most part, it's a solitary endeavor. And I would call it almost solipsistic <laughs> rather than solitary. I mean, it's almost like the world doesn't exist. It's just the words on the page. And I think that's also something that distinguishes um, what I do is um, while I don't think there's anything at all wrong with paying attention to current trends in poetry, there's certainly nothing wrong with writing in a, a known genre. Um, there's nothing wrong with addressing things that are in the, you know, news and current events. Um, all of that, I think, is is perfectly understandable for, for poets. But for me, what's most important is the words on the page. I look at it as uh, word art. And that's sort of the most important thing is to, to make the poem as, as good as possible, both on the page and off the page when it's when it's spoken. Mm. So you, when I'm writing, you'll also hear a lot of sounds coming out because I'm um, testing out, you know, what sounds good in the air. Ah, so you're writing for the. You really pay a lot of attention to the rhythm, the sound, the rhyme, um, the form, as well as the words. Absolutely, form is is critically important to me. I know that that's a little bit out of fashion, but um, not only does form inspire me, um, but it also, I find it paradoxically liberating. I come up with ideas um, such as in the poem Seeds that I never would have thought of if I was writing strictly in free verse. Um, now, some of the poems in Exits are pure free verse. And then many of the longer poems are a combination of formal elements and free verse. So I'm, I'm comfortable working in, in either world, but um, I think it's the inclusion of formal elements that distinguishes um, what I do. You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, obviously there's, for a long time been sort of, um, I don't know if you'd say a f argument or, or, you know, people who say free verse isn't really poetry or, you know, that you have, but, or the opposite that free verse is the only real form of poetry. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there is an inclination to think that 
oh, it's much easier to write free verse. You know, you don't have to worry about the rhyme. You don't have these limitations. You can just do whatever you want. So I find it interesting that you say that it's in a way harder for you to write free verse. That much harder, much harder. Um, it's because um, there's no safety net to fall back on. Um, and the elements of poetry are still all there. It's still important to have rhythm and cadence and to manage the tone and to pay attention to the syntax and the diction. Um, but all of that has to be created organically um, from scratch. And so it takes me a lot longer to write a poem in free verse than than a poem that, say, has a received form. That's that's really fascinating. Why don't you share another poem with us, Stephen? Oh, I'd be delighted to. Um, since we were talking about form and free verse, let me just read one section of a poem called Arachnidea Line Drawings. That um, title, Arachnidea, you won't find in any dictionary. It's a made-up word. Um, to me, it sounded like um, a compendium of sorts, uh, a dictionary of things imbued with arachnid uh, <laughs> properties, if you will. Um, and the line drawing sort of weaves together three uh, three strands of meaning. Um the lines of a spider web, um, lines of poetry, but also renderings in pen and ink. And that kind of speaks to the imagery in the poem as well. So the title is Arachnidea Line Drawings. It's six parts. I won't read all six, but if it's all right with you, I'll read part five where um, the the um, metaphor of a spider web is applied to music. All right. And so, part five. A concert in the round. Divertimenti scored for eight short hands will be played by the maestro for adoring fans. The fine fretwork glistens. The strings tune and go still. Once in motion, you dazzle in the parts for pizzicato. Leap with ease over fourths and fifths. Scuttle up scales to a dizzying height. Then plummet by octaves to the sublime. All are amused for a time. The circle is crossed by chords. Point to counterpoint, illusions of balance, of words. Listen to the last mournful strains, murmuring a requiem for the days. Thank you. And that was another excerpt from Exits which is a book of poetry by Stephen Pollock. Stephen, how did... Um you come to publish this? Like, is this, um, did you find a publisher? Is it from an, uh, an award, you know, where you submitted to a contest or? Great question. Um, it was uh, an unusual um, occurrence, really a fortuitous occurrence. Um, I had a prior professional relationship with a publishing consultant uh, named Maggie Lynch. And um, it turns out that Maggie also heads up a um, uh, cooperative publishing group called Wintree Press. And after she and I got to know each other and she read Exits, she asked if I would published under the Wintree Press imprint, and that's how it came to be. Oh, well, that seems like a pretty easy path to publication. 
compared to easier some. than most. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Stephen, we've we haven't even gotten into the other kind of half of the book, which is the artwork that you've paired with each poem. So yes. tell me a little bit about why you decided to do that, what it means, and how you selected the works of art. The decision to pair the poems with art was really an intuitive one. Uh, I felt that um, art would complement the poetry, um, but I also thought that it would um, resonate in interesting ways um, with the poetry and that it would enhance the reader's experience. Um, the selection of works was more complicated. Uh, some of the, some of the artwork, such as the goldfinch on the flower is really illustrative. It's, it's, uh, simply an illustration of what's going on in the, uh, in the poem's narrative. But most of the artwork was selected because it provided a different perspective or a different slant on the topic that was being discussed. And the hope was that that would then um, evoke more thought and kind of expand the topic so that people would think of the poem not only by itself, but also in relation to this artwork that really wasn't an illustration at all. For example, um, in the poem Nasal Biopsy, which is ostensibly about a surgical procedure, the artwork is the door of a cathedral. And the reason for that was that... Um, uh, First of all, the, the narrative voice in the poem perceives in the structure of the nose um, the architecture, Gothic architecture of a cathedral. But the poem is ultimately about questions of faith. And so the cathedral door as artwork um, helps bring that out. Um, even though when you start reading the poem, it really... It really is about a nasal bias. <laughs> so um, did you have to like get rights to all of these? Thank goodness, no. Um, <laughs> I, I found most of the artwork to be in the public domain. Okay. So and for example, so you've got a uh, drawing by Leonardo da Vinci. I do, yes, so um, of that's... the spine, which goes with spine of Dorian Gray. And, and so obviously that's in the public domain at this point, right? It is. And yeah. and the Picasso um, of Girl um, in a Mirror um, is also in the public domain now. Um, but two pieces I, I did have to get permission. Um, one was the piece... Um, that accompanies zombie fires, and you see sort of a black globe with um, fire coming out of uh, what looked like continents. Um, that I needed to get permission for. And then um, I also got permission for the beautiful digital collage that accompanies Metamorphosis, uh, which is by Julia Lillard. She is a um, an artist of great talent, and um, I really admire her work. And um, she kindly gave her permission to to use that uh, that piece. In fact, uh, she did so on one condition, and that is that I would send her a copy of the book afterwards. <laughs> Which, which I did. So then why, like the other ones, there's photographs, there's draw, line drawings, there's other types of um, 
like mixed media things. Why did you not have to get permission for those? Um, many of them I I was able to get from royalty-free mm. stock photo organizations online. So these artists have already basically given the rights to this stock photo company or whatever. And so the company pays them a fee, but of course right. I have to pay a fee to the company for, right, for right. the use of it. Yeah, that certainly makes it, that's all kind of developed in what the last 15 years, maybe that ability yes. to do that. And it sure makes, uh, you know, it's, it's great for people like us who want to use this art. I'm not sure if it's great for the artists or not, whether they're getting compensated. I hope they are. I hope, I mean, they're getting compensated something at least, but, and so for many, it's probably better than nothing, but I, I wonder if it's kind of like musicians with where the amount of royalties sometimes they get from the streaming services is so small that it's like so, so, uh, yeah. inappropriately small. Yeah. 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 Speaking of music, have you ever um, considered putting any of your poems to music? I haven't, which is kind of <laughs> unusual because I'm a great lover of music uh, as well. And um, I listen to all types of music. I, I love ancient music, you know, pre-Renaissance um, music. Uh, I love Bach and Beethoven. Uh, I like rock music. I like, you know, singer-songwriters from from the last um last half of the 20th century um i love jazz well, jazz <laughs> is my preferred um you know uh type of music to listen to when i'm doing exercise um i just love john coltrane from the 1950s so it's very unusual that i haven't thought about your idea <laughs> of um putting the uh uh, the poems to music, but I will have that opportunity. Uh, the, the book now exists in print and in ebook, but um, I have engaged um, or at least contacted um, a uh, producer of audiobooks. And so later this summer, we'll be doing an audiobook and um, if it's all right with you, I'll pass on your idea of perhaps putting some music in at <laughs> the beginning at the, and the end of each poem or something like that. Now, are you going to read yourself on the audiobook? I am. Um, I will have to do a little bit of voice training ahead of time. Um, I think you can tell that I have a little scratchiness. That's not because I have a cold, but because... Um, the Canadian wildfires have spread all this smoke and we're getting that now in North Carolina, but uh, hopefully that will be passed uh, by August. And um, if I do a little of the kind of voice training I did in college, <laughs> hopefully I'll be clear enough to, to read the poems myself. In um, Iowa, Last weekend, I'm in Texas now, but in Iowa last weekend, we got back up into the unhealthy zone on the air quality. Oh, yeah, the 150 um, air quality index. And, and I, can, I can definitely feel it. You know, yeah. I, was, I was wearing a mask when I was outdoors because I just, because I was outdoors quite a bit and I did not want, to, you know, I wanted to protect myself to the degree I could. But boy, was I... You know, it was weird because I would take the mask off as soon as I went inside. And for all those years, it was the other way around. You know, you take the mask off when you're outside and put That's it back right. on when you're inside. <laughs> well, and, we're, we're reminded now that masks have many uses. So. Right, right. And they, they definitely work um, for for some of those, for those uses, in my opinion. <laughs> so um, when you... When you're writing, I think I read somewhere that you write about four lines per day. 
of That's poetry. correct. That's an average. Um, and interestingly, it's it's been that way, except in childhood. When I was nine, I wrote much more quickly. Um, but since college, um, and certainly um, with respect to the poems that appear in Exits, uh, my average is about four lines per day. Um, now, that doesn't mean I just end up with four lines on a page. That's usually out of maybe 10 or a dozen pages of drafts and, <laughs> you know, trial lines and just sequences of words and sonic effects and things like that. Um, different ideas for for metaphors and such. So there's a lot that goes into those four lines. And you might think, ah, but they must be perfect at that point. Not really. Um, <laughs> I, I have found uh, over the years um, from personal experience that a really satisfying first draft um only begins to show its flaws when enough time has elapsed to be able to objectively evaluate the poem. And so although I do a lot of editing during the writing process, um, most of the poems get edited for months or years afterwards. Um, I'll give you an example, sort of an extreme example, is the poem Eclipse, which is in Exits. Um, that poem is only eight lines long, but it was written originally in 2003, and over the next 19 years, it underwent 19 um, <laughs> revisions. So... The poem is much better now, in my opinion, but um, it took a lot and and it it took a certain amount of time um, to see what the flaws were and to realize that the poem could be improved. And that's true of almost all of the poems that, that appear in the book. Um, okay, they, so been... that begs the question. Yes. How do you know when it is enough, when it's done? I never know ahead of time. <laughs> it's only when you get there. <laughs> and when, when you get there and, and you've had the poem, say, for a year now, and, and every line looks as good as you can do, um, then you know. So there comes a point where you look at the poem, you read it again, and you say, I wouldn't change a word. Exactly. And that's true of the entire book now. Wow. Because all the poems have been subjected to that kind of repeated scrutiny over months or years. Okay. But on on version 15 of Eclipse, when you finished that version, did you think, okay, this is as good as it's going to get? Absolutely. Each time. Each time you thought that. So so what's the difference between the first 18 times you thought that and the 19th time you thought that? <laughs> I'm not it, It's a great question you ask. How do you know that you've gotten to the end? Um, I mean, if, really I, if I call you up five years from now, are you going to tell me, you know what? I made one more change to that poem. <laughs> I guarantee not. No? I guarantee okay. I, I really know when it's done, but the the time when you don't know is when you've done your first draft and you're satisfied with it. Mm. That's where you, that's, you, you do not want to submit that poem for publication because chances are, if you give it enough time, it will start to show you the problems that, that are inherent in it, the, the, the flaws, as I say. So you don't ever submit a poem after, I mean, after your final first draft? No. No. You, and it's because wait. of that. I, I've always learned that, you know, you can do better and 
editing is a key part of the of the process and I am a merciless editor of my own work not, <laughs> not of other people's you you you're okay with killing your darlings yeah and <laughs> and if a poem ends up I mean there were poems that I thought were acceptable um and there were actually two that were going to go into the book and I realized over time that a they weren't um of that quality they they weren't um on a par with some of the other works in there but also that there was no way to improve them that they were just you know they uh, uh they veered <laughs> off in the wrong direction they were there, there was no cure for what ailed them and so those were just oh dismissed. that's interesting okay so um have you ever had a poem that was published in a journal or something, but then you still wanted to make changes after that? Because mm. I know that some writers do that. I, yeah. I don't think so. I'm trying, I'm going through the poems that have been published in journals in my mind. And I can't think of anywhere I would like to go back and change a line. So no, I, I, I think the um, uh, the approach of waiting a sufficient amount of time before submitting has served me well. How do you decide what poems to submit to journals? Do they all get submitted once they're at the point where you feel they're as good as they're you know that they're done, or are there some that? You never, you just, nope, this one's just for me or just for my book. Uh, there are some that I have never submitted, but usually the reason is, is because I, I don't think they have the quality or the merit that, that uh, the journal deserves. Um, I have been really fortunate um, that just in the last several years, I've had 14 of my poems um published in journals. Not all of those are in exits, but um, um, I just, I wouldn't have anticipated that uh, if you'd asked me five years ago, if I thought that, you know, that many poems would get published. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's great to get that kind of validation. Absolutely. Um did you were you submitting poems from the time you started picked up writing again? Were you submitting, or did it take you a while before you started submitting? I started submitting slowly and um, unwisely. Um, <laughs> I, I would just pick out the journal that I knew, or the uh, poetry journal or literary journal that I subscribed to, and would simply send a poem there. And uh, there, there was no consideration as to whether or not the poem was a good fit for the journal or the journal was a good fit for the poem. And so one of the things that um, I've done more recently is make sure I, I read from the journal and find out what type of work they like and what they don't um, and make sure that whatever I submit to them is, you know, in their wheelhouse, in their bailiwick. Um, and I think that helps. I, you know, they're not going to look at the poem and say, has he never read our journal before? Our journal? <laughs> <laughs> do you read a lot of poetry? I try to, and I do now. Um, um, I read almost none when I was in my, um, academic medical practice. Um, but in the last, I guess, 20 years, um, I've been reading uh, quite a bit of poetry. And um, I think that's that also helps stimulate ideas, even if the ideas have nothing to do with the poems you're reading. Mm. Um, it, it puts you in kind of a 
poetic frame of mind, if you will. Absolutely. Now, you talked about um, being a really detailed editor, <laughs> a harsh editor of your own work. Do you, is editing a separate process for you from from the writing? Like, do you wait until you feel like this poem's complete and then go back and edit? Or are you editing the as you're writing the entire time? It's the second of the two. I'm, I'm doing it um, while I'm writing. Um, I guess one word that comes to mind, um, which relates to that idea of the, the other Steve, the critic being on my shoulder mm-hmm. while I'm writing and, and looking at every word as it comes out, um, is the, the word ecstasy. I love that word as applied to writing poetry for two reasons. Uh, One is that it really describes the feeling that I get when a line truly comes together. Um, There's an ecstatic feeling, a cathartic feeling. But the origin of the word uh, ecstasis is, is from the Greek, and it actually means to stand outside of oneself. And so it kind of describes the relationship I have to my personal critic, the facsimile of me that, that is my, uh, my personal editor, um, who's standing outside me at the same time that I'm writing. <laughs> you know, I find it really curious that you weren't able to write for 17 years as an academic and yet you become a CEO of a startup company and, and you find time and energy to write. Yes. That surprises me. (laughs) ah, Well, I, um, uh, I hope my, my co-founder isn't listening to this podcast, but um, for the last, Oh gosh at least 12 years, I've been more or less confined to home and was heading up the company from my office here. Um, I have a 24-year history of MS, of multiple sclerosis. And um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending upon how you think of it, um, it's mainly the spinal cord variant of, of MS And so my cognitive function is uh, unimpaired, but my lower limbs are not spared. And so my right leg is partially paralyzed. I can still ambulate with a walker, but it's meant that I can't drive. And uh, so I couldn't do my weekly trips down to the corporate center uh, in Charlotte and being at home um, meant that I could control my time. And so even though I would spend 60 hours a week working on a company business, it meant that I could still set aside time to write if I wanted to. Uh, um, so that's, well, I think. <laughs> it, it so I guess that's possible. the silver lining. Yes. <laughs> Yep. You know, it's interesting. I just was reading an article in, I think it was the New Yorker this morning about all the um, advances made in treatment of MS. Yes. Um, and I have a family member who was diagnosed in the 80s and um, is actually has done remarkably well. You wouldn't know that she has it, you know, from if you saw her. But uh, but I'm, I'm really really it's really good to hear that there is progress being made in oh, yes. in that treatment of that and, disease. And I'm on a, a immunosuppressant, a biologic agent that has worked just beautifully for the last year and a half. I haven't had any relapses in the last year and a half. And, um, you know, I do about two hours of flexibility exercises every day. And then I also do um, aerobics on the bicycle. Uh, it was a little bit difficult with my right leg learning to make a smooth circular motion. Um, 
because that right leg just wants to shoot out. It's very spastic, but I was able to kind of relearn how to do the bicycle. And so I'm able to get aerobic exercise. I do resistance exercises with leg lifts and weights on my ankles. Um, And I'm still able to walk with a walker. So, um, you know, when I look around the world and see what's going on in Ukraine and in places where there's famine and such, I can't really feel bad about myself having a little bit of difficulty walking, Mm. you know, so we have to put it into perspective. (laughs) So Stephen, you have one more poem to share with us before we run out of time today. I do. This is a poem that um, is one of the most sad things I've ever experienced. This is a poem called Steve's Balloons. And it actually describes an experience I had when my wife and I were driving in a small town near where I live called Haw River. And we saw an abandoned building and an abandoned parking lot. And on the roof, uh, you could see that um, uh, there was, there were the words balloons by Steve. And it told a whole story. Um, We were in this depressed area, economic area, and somebody had thought to to, um, put up a business or start a business for party supplies. And I thought, oh my God, what's the chance that that's going to survive. And of course it didn't, you know, this, this was an abandoned building. And so it almost brought tears to my eyes because I realized that somebody had this dream of having a, a little store and particularly a store that would make people happy and, and provide supplies for their, you know, their fun occasions. And yet it was doomed from the beginning And um, I took a picture later of the building, and it appears in the book. And even though the picture says Balloons by Steve on the roof, um, I changed the name of the poem to Steve's Balloons. And um, if it's all right, I'll read that. Please. Steve's Balloons. In our dreams... Dreams are like balloons, light and round and always, always rising. As I drove through Haw River, a one-church town in the south, I caught a glimpse of their maker and stopped to reflect. The store was boarded up, its gravel parking lot weedy and empty of cars, and I saw where plastic letters had been taken down from the faded roof, leaving a less faded stencil of the words, Steve's Balloons. He must have grown up here, this namesake of mine, amid these rural ruins, the porches in disrepair, the cracked pavement and telephone poles, and the strip mall the locals regard as their special version of Eden. I imagined the boyish optimism that inflated his hopes and buoyed his faith that a worn and weary town would find perpetual cause to celebrate. I saw then that balloons are not at all round, but are shaped like tears that a dream is not so much that scrap of rubber on the ground as the breath that once filled it. Thank you, Steve. Do you go by Steve? I do. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. So that was Steve Pollock reading from Exits, and we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. And we always close with a quote. So this one I found that I think applies um, to you. 
You must have a certain amount of maturity to be a poet. Seldom do 16-year-olds know themselves well enough. And that's by Erica Zhang. Very nice. <laughs> it's very nice. So thank you once again, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices.